when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. It's been a traumatic week in Parliament, with Boris Johnson offering several groveling apologies for misleading MPs. But now he is facing his third inquiry into the Partygate scandal. I paid the fine immediately, and I offered the British people a full apology. And I take this opportunity on the first available sitting day to repeat my wholehearted apology to the House. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be diving into the question of whether the Prime Minister knowingly misled MPs. Boris Johnson has apologised several times, yet a ruse to avoid charges he is in contempt of Parliament failed. We'll be examining whether the Prime Minister's standing is crumbling away with our chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley and special guest Hannah White from the Institute for Government Think Tank. And later, we'll explore Johnson's trade trip to India and ask whether it has yielded any substance or is simply a distraction from problems at home. We'll also see how this links into the UK's trade deal with the EU and whether that's at risk due to concerns about that thorny Northern Ireland protocol. George Parker, our political editor, joins us down the line from New Delhi and public policy editor Peter Foster is in the studio with me in London. Thank you all for joining. After being the first Prime Minister to have been found guilty of committing a criminal offence while in office, it was always going to be a tricky week for Boris Johnson. He duly came to the Commons on Tuesday and apologised over and over, sometimes in almost dead silence. But then it all went off the rails again for Downing Street, as they attempted to avoid a contempt investigation into Johnson. The PM tried to dodge and push this inquiry back into the summer, but the government whip suddenly found on Wednesday and Thursday the Tory MPs were unwilling to support them, so it was nodded through on Thursday, dragging in the whole Partygate affair out even further. Angela Rayner, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, argued in the Commons that the whole affair is dragging the Tory party into disrepute. The Prime Minister is leading the Conservative Party into the sewer. It's now up to members opposite to decide whether they follow him. It is up to members to decide whether it is a red line for the Prime Minister of this country to break the ministerial code, break the trust of the British public and get away with it. Well, Robert Trimsley, welcome back to the podcast. Let's play through what's been quite an extraordinary week. So the House of Commons returned from the Easter recess on Tuesday and Boris Johnson delivered a statement about 4.30 in the afternoon where, as I said, he said, sorry, 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 over again. And it appeared he was quite contrite. That was until he went to a private meeting of Tory MPs and was slightly less contrite. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that if all you saw this week was the Prime Minister's performance in the House of Commons when he was delivering that apology. You would look at this and say, he's going to get through this because the number of Conservative MPs turning on him was not substantial. Most of them were people who'd already 
declared themselves before. The apology was delivered very well. Although, you know, those engaged in close textual reading will have noticed that he was acknowledging that he'd had to pay the fine rather than saying that he really realised he'd done something wrong. But then, of course, he goes to his backbench, 1922 committee, and delivers the kind of tub-thumping, rumbustuous performance designed to bring heart and cheer them up and say, look, this is all rubbish, really, and let's get on with running the country. And it's briefed out, word gets out, and the whole facade of humility crumbles. And after that, it just gets very, very difficult for him. And I think the fundamental problem that conservatives have when judging this is that he's not particularly sorry. He doesn't think he's done anything wrong. And they know that actually the fine which we've been discussing so far is only one of a number that he could be hammered with and that the other ones are for things which look far worse. So if he thought this was going to draw a line under it, I think he's wrong. Well, Hannah White, it's great to have you back with us. Let's put the politics aside and just look at the legalistic nature of this, that as we know, in the ministerial code that governs the conduct of the people who run the country, it says that if you knowingly mislead the House of Commons, you're expected to resign. If you unknowingly lead the House of Commons, you're expected to correct the record at the first opportunity. That is what Boris Johnson did this week. But that is not the end of the matter. How can the House of Commons decide knowingly versus unknowingly? because they're essentially trying to get into Boris Johnson's head. I think it's a really good thing that the House of Commons, from the point of view of the House of Commons, has pursued this what's called a Privileges Committee investigation because it's not okay for lots of MPs to raise the question about whether the Prime Minister has lied to the House, but Parliament to just let that go and do nothing about it. So what they have done is say, well, actually, we can, we have this mechanism, the Privileges Committee, which can look at whether the Prime Minister has committed a contempt against the House by misleading it. And what they will be able to do is have oral evidence hearings. They'll be able to bring in witnesses. They will be able to call for papers and records. Whether they get anything beyond what Sue Gray will by that point have published, because we know that they're not going to start their investigation until the Met Police have concluded theirs. And we know that the government has committed to publishing the full Sue Gray report immediately after the police finish their investigations. So at that point, the Privileges Committee will begin. They may be able to get further records. They may just get what Sue Gray has already got. But it seems to me that the only real way that they could get the Prime Minister banged to rights, as it were, is if they have documentary evidence of him being, say, copied in on emails where he or his staff debate the legality of holding a gathering or somebody expresses concerns um, and he was involved in that. But beyond that, it's going to have to be a qualitative judgment. And that's, of course, what the Prime Minister is hoping for because let's just unpack this Privilege Committee investigations. This is looking at the contempt idea and there was a motion put forward by opposition MPs this week um, led by Labour and the Lib Dems and the Greens and the SNP. And at first, There was talk that the Tories would just vote this down, saying we don't need an investigation, we've got all these other things going on, and we can get on with our lives. But then the government put forward this amendment, which would have delayed a vote on the investigation until the summer. And then it seems suddenly, on Thursday morning, support for that amendment evaporated, and they ended up backing the Labour motion, which... The wording of the Labour motion is admitting that the Prime Minister misled the House and Tory MPs just nodded it through without a formal vote. It's remarkable to me that the government sort of ended up where it probably should have started. It should have just let this vote go through, I think, because, you know, actually the Labour and opposition motion said we're not going to start this investigation until after the police have concluded theirs. They instead 
expended a huge amount of political capital, annoyed all their backbenchers, they made themselves look defensive, and they ended up, as you've said, just having a free vote rather than whipping their MPs to oppose the motion. So it seems like a very convoluted way to get back to where they could have started and in the process to have chipped away further, I think, at um, the Prime Minister's position. I mean, I think this is a key point in a way, because although the Privileges Committee is at one level really important and were it to conclude that he had misled the House, that would historically put him in a great deal of trouble. I mean, I think in the end, one has to separate out the parliamentary process from the things that will actually do for Boris Johnson, if anything is. And the thing that will do for Boris Johnson is when his MPs no longer feel it's in their interest or that it is safe for them to be defending him. And what happened with this motion this week is that a significant number, enough for the Tories to feel they were going to lose this vote, said, we don't want to put our names to a motion that's clearly designed to shield the PM and get him off the hook. And that's the key fact here. And it's going to be the key fact in determining his fate in the end. Because leadership crises, you know, they, they never peak first time. They're rather like waves coming up on a beach when the tide is coming in and each wave gets a little bit higher and then eventually one overruns all the sand, over, overruns the leader. What we're seeing is wave after wave and Boris Johnson's been quite successful up till now in pushing them back and holding the line. But what we saw this week was a moment in which a significant number of MPs said, we're just not prepared to put our names to motions defending you. Now, not enough to do for him yet, but that I think is the real significance. The MPs feel uncomfortable defending him. And it reminded me as well, when I saw some of the exchanges in Parliament on Tuesday, they were received in dead silence, including Keir Starmer's rebuttal to the Prime Minister's statement there. And that gave me eerie echoes, Robert, of those final days of Theresa May when she was desperately trying to shore up her position and it was just a stony silence on the Tory bench. Now, we're not obviously anywhere near that point yet, and I completely agree with you. It's going to be when... Boris Johnson looks like a clear electoral liability that he will go. But this does feel the significant thing is that support has really shifted away from underneath the Prime Minister. And it's very hard to rebuild that once it's gone. I think that's absolutely right. Clearly, the big moment that's coming in the next few weeks are the local elections. And that, I think, is going to be quite decisive, or it has the potential to be quite decisive in determining his future. If the disaster of the Conservatives, I think he's finished. If they turn out to be unexpectedly good, then I think he is probably going to be able to get through this. But if, as is probably the most likely outcome, they're good in parts and bad in parts, MPs are going to have to make judgments, but they're clearly going to wait until the local election. But I think at that point, they're going to take a hard look at this and say, are we going to get through the next election? And that's always been the fundamental calculation. It's never been a morality play. It's a, is he taking us down or can we get through this? I think the Prime Minister really tried strenuously to do this week, including on, on Tuesday with his apology, which very quickly segued into a statement about what he'd been doing on Ukraine. He tried to move the agenda on. And I think where Conservative MPs have been left at the end of this week is with a very clear sense that they're not going to be able to move on from this as quickly as the government would like. They've got potentially further fines, they've got Sue Gray, and then they have the prospect of this Privileges Committee investigation, which could run right into the autumn. So they've now got to weigh in the balance the fact that they are going to be continuing to talk about Partygate for some months to come. Well, someone who has come to that same conclusion has got fed up is Steve Baker, who is a former minister, very prominent backbench Tory MP, a very successful campaigner. And he actually said earlier in the week that he thought Boris Johnson should be given forgiveness. But then on Thursday, he changed his mind. I have to say, I'm sorry, that for not obeying the letter and the spirit, and I think we have heard that the Prime Minister did know what the letter was, the Prime Minister now 
should be long gone. Yeah. Madam Deputy Speaker, I'll certainly vote for this motion, but really, the Prime Minister should just know the gig's well up. There is a feeling, Robert, that more Tory MPs are privately coming to a view similar to Steve Baker, even if they're not saying it in public. And part of that is because if Boris Johnson was to be removed or forced out, there is no obvious successor. And in some ways, many in Boris Johnson's inner circle have been saying quietly, the fact Rishi Sunak was fined is actually keeping the Prime Minister in place. Because if he hadn't been fined and was in a stronger political position, then things could be very different right now. Rishi Sunak was the plan B, and he was a good plan B for a while. He really looked the business. He had substantial national popularity, extended beyond the party, obviously easily done when you're doling out loads of money on furlough schemes. But nonetheless, he represented a prospect of renewal for the Conservative Party. I think actually even before the fine, his star had waned substantially. He'd made a number of political misjudgments. Tory MPs are angry about the tax rises. And he's clearly not the figure he was. You can't yet rule him out entirely, but he's he's not the figure he was. And they don't have an obvious successor, certainly an obvious successor who they can look at with confidence and say, now here's someone we can get behind and the country will love. So that has played into Boris Johnson's survival. Equally what's played into Boris Johnson's survival, and I think probably more important, is that Tory MPs don't yet believe that Labour is there. They're not convinced that its poll leads amount to very much. They're not convinced there's a real enthusiasm in the country to make Keir Starmer Prime Minister, so they're not yet that frightened. And I think that's always been the fundamental point for them, is do they think that for all the problems that Boris Johnson has, when it comes to that crunch, when it comes to that moment in the ballot box, these decisions aren't made in a vacuum, are people really going to say, yeah, I want Keir Starmer as Prime Minister? At the moment, not enough of them have moved over the line that says, yes, we're doomed if we keep him. And when you look at the people who are speaking up, you're not seeing many surprising voices yet. You're not seeing people who've been keeping quiet or who you would regard as a bellwether for the centre ground of, of the Conservative Party. So it hasn't happened yet, but I do think there's a huge bunch of waverers waiting to be given permission to turn on him by something like bad local elections. Hannah, if we just stand back and look at where Parliament is after this week, it's been quite a tawdry week in a way. And we'll look at this and think this whole row has left politics in a particularly good situation that obviously we've had this backwards and forwards about the Privilege Committee investigation. And it feels like this line that Boris Johnson has said about not knowingly misled the Commons and what have you is going to be stretched over the coming weeks if there are more revelations and more party fines. And... There's been an interesting debate about the L word, lying, because traditionally you're not allowed to use that kind of language in the House of Commons, except when you're looking debating on particular motions. And I think a lot of people just look at the whole debate and politics about it and just say, it's all just a mess, a real mess, and the systems for accountability are not working well. Do you think there's any truth to that? Well, I do think it's been completely inexplicable to the public how you can be sanctioned more seriously for accusing someone of lying in, in Parliament than you can be for actually potentially lying yourself. And I think that has been bad for Parliament. On the other hand, you know, you could say this in, in some ways has been a good week for Parliament. The fact that, you know, people would often say, oh, well, you know, if you have a, a government with, a, I think it's now a sort of working majority of 74 seats, there's really nothing Parliament can do to assert itself. Actually, you know, the executive is always in control. And I think what we've seen this week is it's really possible for parliamentarians to push back if the executive is trying to get them to do something that they don't want to do. And that is really important. Parliament can and has this week, I think, asserted that it does care if it's lied to. This Partygate issue is in some ways, it's much bigger than Boris Johnson's career. It's about whether Parliament can effectively do its job of holding government to account. 
can it be sure that when ministers come before it, they are telling the truth and that therefore it, you know, it can get to the bottom of what's going on in government? And I think that Parliament, to an extent, has shown that this week. And finally, Robert, what happens next? So we've got the local elections in May and we know the Met Police announced this week they're not going to put forward any further fines until after those local elections. So it could be the fact that the day after the locals, they announced several more fines in one dump and if the results are bad for Boris Johnson, then that will make the situation even worse. But as Hannah was saying earlier, this thing is really going to drag on because you've got further fines, the local elections. Then when the Met's finished, we've got the full Sue Gray report. Then we've got the Privileges Committee investigation, which could roll well into the autumn. So unless something really comes to a head, Boris Johnson just will sort of keep floating along. You've got all those things. And let's not forget, we've also got a cost of living crisis. We've got people feeling poorer. And I think that's that's more important in a way than all the other stuff, because that isn't a fundamental underlying the position of the government, which has now been in power for 12 years. People are just not feeling better about things. And What's happened to Boris Johnson gives those people who voted Conservative permission in their own mind to turn on him. I think if the locals are really bad, it's over. I think the fines could become much more problematic because, I mean, so far, the one he's been fined for, you can, you know, cluck at it and go, well, it wasn't that terrible. People knew about this time. But the other ones are going to be worse if he's fined for them. My own sense is that unless he is saved by the local elections, you will see the sands you know, running away from him. And I'm sure they've got a grid of major announcements planned for straight off the local elections just to show momentum when they're getting on with it and shore himself up in the party. But things are not getting better. The only question is whether the Conservative MPs who think he does need to go pluck up the courage to act before we're too close to the next election cycle and they can't. Well, that is really the question, I think, of the next sort of six months. Robert and Hannah, thank you very much. Well, Boris Johnson wasn't present for this week's parliamentary shenanigans. Instead, the Prime Minister was on a long-awaited trade trip several thousand miles away in India, seeking another trade deal to boost his global Britain ambitions. The Prime Minister claimed the trip has yielded a billion pounds of fresh investment and will boost 10,000 new jobs. Connor Burns, one of Boris Johnson's staunchest allies in the government, insisted he was not playing a game of hide-and-seek from problems at home. That would be a grossly unfair uh, suggestion. Okay. This visit to India has been on the cards, has been cancelled, I think, once, at least once, possibly twice uh, beforehand due to COVID restrictions. The Prime Minister's out there batting for Britain on the international stage in the same way that he was walking around downtown, downtown Kiev with President Zelensky a couple of weeks ago. Well, George Parker, it's a delight to have you joining us from New Delhi. So tell us, how has Boris Johnson been received in India this week? Well, in a far warmer way than he's been received at the House of Commons this week, I think it'd be fair to say so. Um, we were coming into the uh, city centre of Ahmedabad in the large city of Gujarat so at the start of the trip, and the street was festooned with posters uh, with huge pictures of Boris Johnson saying, welcome Boris Johnson to Gujarat. They had welcoming dancers. They had children lining the street waving Union Jacks. So a very marked contrast, I think it'd be fair to say, between the reception he's received in India and what was going on back home. And when you look at this trade trip, as um, you heard Connor Burns say, they've tried to do this several times before, and I think one of its earliest incarnations was blamed for not putting India on the COVID red list, if we remember that back in the day, um, because he was trying to seek good relations. What exactly is it that Boris Johnson wants? Is it just more investment? Is it more jobs? Or is there something, some sort of grander project to it? There's a bit of both. I mean, if you look at the government's integrated review of defence and foreign policy last year, there was a big section on a tilt to the Indo-Pacific. 
which obviously some people think doesn't look slightly dated following what's been happening in Ukraine over the last few months, obviously. But nevertheless, it remains a central part of the government's strategy to try and build a network of like-minded countries, democracies in the Asia-Pacific region as a counterweight to an expansionist China. So India is seen as a key part of that, obviously for historical reasons. Boris Johnson had a press statement this morning here in New Delhi was talking about the fact that India is the world's largest democracy, Britain's the oldest democracy. So there's there's a connection there that Boris Johnson wants to build on. So it's two things really. I mean, look, by the middle of the century, India will be the biggest country in the world. And it's a fast expanding economy. Britain wants some of the action. And they've been talking today about the possibility of getting a trade deal done by the end of the year, or even heroically, Boris Johnson said, by Diwali in October. So they are trying to get a trade deal. It's worth something to Britain. But we have to put all of this in context, Seb, and I think that's an important thing to say, that these trade deals will not replace the lost trade that we've suffered as a result of Brexit. And just to give you one quick fact on that, the Office of Budget Responsibility reckons that Britain will lose 4% of its GDP as a result of Brexit. Even a really ambitious trade deal with India would add about 0.25% of our GDP. Well, Peter Foster, this is the challenge that's been thrown to the Prime Minister throughout all these trade trips, is that it gets nice images, it puts forward this image of Britain having left the EU, but going out into the world and striking new partnerships. But when you come back down to the economic reality of what these deals are potentially going to do, it is all quite minimal. And there's not many people in government who are willing to sort of accept that there is a trade-off there. No, I mean, we have a real problem, which is we're not really engaged in fact-based policymaking. You know, there is this global Britain narrative and it sells on the doorsteps, I think. But as, as George says, you know, when you look at the OBR forecasts, it's clearly not substantive. We do half our trade with Europe. You know, and the old adage was trade is you double the distance, you halve the trade. I used to be based in India. I spent four years living in India. It's a tough place to make money, I can tell you. And, you know, I've listened to prime ministers for 25, 30 years talk about the deep, cultural connections, etc. You try talk to businesses trying to do business there. It's a tough place to do business. And this is ultimately sort of political grandstanding. And, and you know, that's fine. But it was never an either-all proposition, right? When we were a member of the European Union, nothing stopped us going trading with, with India. Germany has a fantastic record in exporting. It's a member of the European Union. It, it was always a conflation that somehow Britain's exports were being retarded by our membership of the European Union, which is not a military superpower, it's not a strategic superpower, it is a trading superpower. And, you know, now we've left, I guess, you know, it's not surprising that the government has to build a counter-narrative, even if it's not entirely based on much economic substance. One interesting element of this economic substance, George, is the issue of visas and migration. And we saw some striking trade stats that came out this week that showed a large increase in non-EU migration to the UK over the recent period. And that is sort of to be expected if you look at how the new points-based immigration system is structured. But the fact is, this has always been one of the big blocks for trade deal that the government's been quite reluctant to talk about significantly liberalising their visa regime with India. Yep, that's exactly what Boris Johnson said when he first landed. Yes, it's an extremely sensitive issue. And I've been on several prime ministerial trips to India where the advanced publicity is all about improved trade relationships and so forth. And the first thing that happens is a British prime minister gets down the steps of the plane. The first thing that comes up is how many more visas are you going to give us for our students and for our workers? The prime minister will mumble something not very obliging. And then the tour ends in disappointment. This is a bit different, though, Seb. The backdrop, as you said, is, is slightly different. That since Brexit... There's been a removal of the cap on skilled workers, the so-called tier two visa route, and 40% of 
of those visas in the last year were given to Indian citizens. So there's been a big increase there. And as you say, on the flight out to Gujarat, Prime Minister pointedly said that Britain was short of several hundred thousand workers, mainly in IT and programmers. And of course, those are the kinds of people that India would like to send to the UK. So the idea of immigration being a block to a future trade agreement seems a bit less likely now. And um, at the press statement I've just been to in the last half an hour, Narendra Modi, the Indian Prime Minister, talked about the living bridge between India and the UK, by which he means the one and a half million people of Indian descent living in, in Britain. And he said he wanted to strengthen that living bridge, which is a, you know, another indication that visas will be a key part of the negotiation. But Peter, doesn't that risk some kind of potential backlash at home? So if we think back to the Brexit referendum and that take back control message, yes, it was a people campaigning for Brexit said it was about control of borders, not reducing migration. But, you know, as people have heard me bang on a lot, I spent a lot of time driving around those places that voted for Brexit. And a lot of people did do it re- expecting less migration. And this sort of strategy Boris Johnson is putting forward could actually see overall increasing migration, even if it is more skilled migration. Could there be a potential reckoning for the Tories there? It depends how you frame it, doesn't it, Seb? You know, people don't want uncontrolled immigration. That that was always the issue about free movement of people. Was we couldn't stop it. Every Polish, Romanian, Hungarian, you know, and when you were on your coffee break, half the people spoke Polish and you felt overwhelmed in communities, particularly where you got clusters of Eastern European, and it was mostly Eastern European migration in, you know, Lincolnshire, picking leaks, whatever it might be, became very difficult. If you frame migration differently and you say you need migration to grow the economy, to create higher value-added jobs, etc., then you get a different outcome. Because what we've seen since Brexit, actually, is a lot of Europeans went home because of COVID. A lot of UK workers left the workforce or stayed in education. And we've had a real skills crunch. And that is really constraining the ability of businesses to grow and the economy to be productive. So as long as you're allied with a skills package... But as long as you're allied with a nominal skills package where you're growing homegrown skills as well, if you're topping up with foreign skills, particularly in higher skilled areas, maybe you can sell that on the doorstep. You'd be a better judge than than me, Sam. Now, just to go back to the diplomacy of this, George, has Boris Johnson tackled some of the more thorny issues with Prime Minister Modi? There's obviously been much concern about Ukraine, that Boris Johnson has very much tried to put himself on the forefront of the Western response and has won plaudits from across the spectrum for that. But India has been a little more ambivalent on the situation there. And there's also been questions about religious freedoms and rights in India. What's your sense from the travelling pack about how those conversations have gone behind closed doors? Well, Boris Johnson has said that he's not afraid to raise difficult issues in his talks with foreign leaders, including Narendra Modi, who he called a special friend today. But the fact is, he's been tiptoeing around the question of Ukraine without any shadow of a doubt. I mean, look, India has refused to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They've called for a ceasefire, but they've refused to criticise the aggression for reasons we understand well. New Delhi has a long-standing diplomatic relationship with Russia, it sees Russia as a counterweight to Chinese power in Asia. And Russia supplies a huge amount of military hardware to India. So there is a particular diplomatic and military problem for India. But nevertheless, you get the very firm impression that Boris Johnson didn't want to rock the boat at all. So in the joint statement he's just given with Narendra Modi, he didn't mention Russia or Ukraine once, the British Prime Minister. He talked about autocratic coercion in the region growing, but refused to mention Russia itself. And on the other issue, you mentioned the intercommunal tensions in India. You know, it's been obviously very well known that um, Modi is accused of marginalising Muslims 
in India. And at the moment, a big story in the in the press here in India is about the bulldozing of a Muslim neighborhood in northern Delhi. This incident has featured a number of JCB bulldozers and earth movers. And so the Indian press over the last few days has been full of stories about JCBs going in and clearing this Muslim neighborhood. It's been referred up to the Supreme Court. So it didn't go down very well, I think, with many commentators here and certainly with Muslims in India when Boris Johnson's first visit in Gujarat was to a new JCB factory. You know, a diplomatic misstep, I think you would say, though Boris Johnson's been quite unapologetic about it this morning. I'm sure it's quite handy, of course, that Lord Bamford, the chairman of JCB, is a big backer of Boris Johnson. That may or may not be related to that trip. Now, Peter, I just want to pivot very finally onto another story you've been writing about this week about Britain's place in the world, and particularly its trading relations with the EU and this issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has caused much angst within government. And this is what Jacob Rees-Mogg had to say ahead of a story that you wrote on the front page on Friday morning. Well, the protocol itself contains um, the procedure for its um, being superseded. And that is really important to understand because there's a lot of commentary that says, well, we signed it and therefore surely we should accept it lock, stock and barrel. That's absolute nonsense. We signed it on the basis that it would be reformed. And there comes a point at which you say, well, you haven't reformed it and therefore we are reforming it ourselves. And the United Kingdom is much more important than any agreement that we have with any foreign power. That must be the case. Well, Peter, you wrote in the FT essentially that Jacob Rees-Mogg is right there, that the fact is the UK is just going to reform it itself. Tell us what the government's planning and how significant this is. It's, it was really interesting that Jacob Rees-Mogg, after that quote, was asked, you know, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And he said, I can't say because the elections, you know, the wheels are in motion. And what we reported today is what they are planning, which is a, a Northern Ireland bill to be introduced probably not in the Queen's speech, but quite soon after, that would create a piece of legal architecture, Seb, that essentially allows the British government to unilaterally set aside, neuter, disapply the key bits of the protocol, which is Articles 5 to 10, which are the bits that govern the fact that under the deal Boris signed, Northern Ireland, part of the United Kingdom, has to follow EU laws and rules for goods. And that creates the border in the Irish Sea that Boris Johnson himself and the MPs on the right of the party find, frankly, unconscionable. And they think that the EU has implemented this protocol in a very heavy-handed way, in a way that undermines the Good Friday Agreement, undermines the place of unionists. And I think they do feel this very strongly. Now, of course... You know, this takes us back to 2020, the internal market bill, the threat to break international law, because you can disapply it in UK law, but nonetheless, your international commitments remain, and therefore, you're in breach of your international commitments, so you're in breach of international law. Of course, if you don't have a border in the Irish Sea, that begs the question, where's the border? The British government, I understand, has legal advice saying the Good Friday Agreement's got nothing to do with borders, you don't need a border, but the EU wants a border... So then, if you're not going to have the border in the Irish Sea and you're not going to have a land border back in Ireland, you have no border. So then Ireland's place in the single market gets crunched and then you get a very visceral reaction from the EU, which is what we saw in the autumn, actually, where David Frost, as was the Brexit leader, wanted to get into this space about creating new facts on the ground. The EU threatened to cancel the TCA if we really got into that space. So do you want a trade war over Northern Ireland? That's the kind of the end stop. It's quite a radical piece of legislation that's being drafted, as I understand it. 
And George, obviously this speaks to what kind of player the UK is in global politics here, that on the one hand, the images of India and trying to get the ambition there, and on the other hand, that situation Peter has just described, which is potentially breaking international law again, as was threatened with the Internal Market Bill, and undermining that trade agreement with the EU, which, as Peter said, could be ripped up or undermined in some way. And do you think Boris Johnson can have it both ways, or if the Northern Ireland protocol is undermined, is that going to have much more significant consequences for the UK's international standing? Well, it certainly could do. I mean, Boris Johnson, um, when he thinks about foreign policy, he likes to think of buccaneering in the in Asia and doing trade deals in New Delhi. But as Peter was saying earlier on, the, the matter is that almost half of our trade is with the European Union. If the European Union reacts in an adverse way, which is entirely predictable, to this kind of emergency legislation that's been, that Peter was reporting on there, there's the danger of trade reprisals. And I'll just go back to the point I was making at the start on the level of trade between Britain and India compared with the level of trade between Britain and the EU. One key fact on this is that we sell twice as much to Belgium as we do to India. And if further barriers are put up by the EU as a trade reprisal to whatever we do in Northern Ireland, then that will have a serious impact on the UK economy. Well, George and Peter, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You know where to find us or the usual places you receive your podcasts. And while you're there, you could leave us a positive review and a nice rating. And also, we must mention the FT's shiny new product. FT Edit is our app that features eight pieces of in-depth journalism a day, handpicked by our top editors that will hopefully inform, explain, and maybe even surprise. It's better than doom scrolling. It's available for all iPhone users. Just search FT Edit on the App Store. The first month is free. It's 99p a month for six months after that. I certainly think it's well worth your time. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks very much for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.